we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Those are important words that we just confessed from the Nicene Creed. But it might surprise you to know that those words were actually not in the creed in its original draft. The first creed, when we refer to the Nicene Creed, it's actually an updated creed. The first creed was made at the Council of Nicaea, the town Nicaea, which is why it's called the Nicene Creed. And the primary purpose of the Nicene Creed at that time was to refute some contrary understandings of Jesus. So the creed wasn't so much interested in laying out a doctrine of the Trinity as much as it was just interested in laying out an understanding of who is Jesus, how Jesus is uncreated and he's equal to the Father in divinity. And that's why there's just so much about Jesus in that middle part of the creed. But the original creed just ended with this phrase, we believe in the Holy Spirit. That's all it said. As a matter of fact, many of the fathers at the Nicene Council actually disagreed with one another over how we are to understand the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit? So what happened was not long after the Council of Nicaea, a second council took place in Constantinople. And it was at Constantinople that they finished the creed and they debated and discussed the Holy Spirit and then they added that longer version at the end explaining that we believe that the Holy Spirit is also a separate member of the Trinity. He is co-equal in His divinity with the Father and the Son. He is to be worshipped right alongside the Father and right alongside the Son. But let me ask you this question. Is it true? Is that even biblical? Well, that is what we are going to discuss today. It's going to be a bit more of a topical sermon than we normally do. Rather than preaching expositionally through the text verse by verse, we're going to take a break and do something topical. But we're still in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 is what spurred this. So if you would please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We are going to read just one verse from the passage that we read last week's. Ephesians chapter 4, if you would please read with me verse 30. And even though it's a single verse, it is still the Word of God. And so I would invite you to stand as we show reverence to God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Thus saith the Lord, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This bars the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. Last week when we preached this passage, not just this verse, but the longer passage in its context, uh, we were focusing on holiness. We were looking at not just a general call to holiness, but we saw in this passage a very specific call to holiness. And Paul gave us some incredibly specific details of how we as a Christian church, as a Christian community, can live out our Christianity. But sandwiched within this longer passage of of holiness and gospel motivations for how to be holy is this amazing little verse that we just read. This is a little verse that has garnered a lot of attention over the last 2,000 years of Christian history. And so I think it's important for us to take from this verse as sort of a, a stepping stone to have an important conversation, if you will, as a church about who and what is the Holy Spirit. 
Believe it or not, there is a lot in this verse, some explicit, but a lot of it implicit, that tells us some things about the Holy Spirit. And it's important for us to be on the same page. Because there are a lot of abuses and misunderstandings of the Holy Spirit in our world today and throughout church history. The sad fact remains that even among uh, evangelicals and, and others, not just evangelicals, other people who have a, a sound understanding of the Trinity, uh, it still is not uncommon for us to either abuse or neglect the Holy Spirit. There are those who abuse the Holy Spirit, and what I mean by that is they focus so much on miraculous gifts that their whole Christianity becomes miracles and working miracles and how to do miracles. And oftentimes the reason they abuse the Spirit is, is things will happen that are not from the Spirit, that are not miracles, and they will say it was the Spirit. They will hear voices in their head and they will teach people things that they claim the Spirit of God told them, that the Spirit of God is speaking to them. So we speak where the Spirit has not spoken. We attribute works to the places where the Spirit has not worked, and that can be a dangerous abuse. But on the flip side of those communities, sometimes we overreact to those abuses. And in many churches, I think this especially takes place among the Reformed tradition, where the Spirit becomes altogether neglected. We don't think twice about Him. We don't believe that He's still working in the world, working in our lives, doing amazing things. And so within the Orthodox community, sometimes we have abuse and a lot of times we have neglect. But what's even worse than that are those who exist outside of the Orthodox community who just have flat-out wrong views of the Holy Spirit. To give some specific examples, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a heretical understanding of the Spirit. They teach that the Spirit is like a force. It's, it's more of an attribute of God. Like if I were to push you and you were to poetically say, Colin's strength moved me, like my strength is just... It's part of me, right? It's not like a separate thing. It, you're, just, you're really just talking about me. And that's what they say the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is just when the Father does things on earth. And we call that the Spirit. They, they say the Spirit is like gravity or electricity. It's just the force of God, the power of God. That is not at least how the Nicene Fathers understood the Spirit. And there's another very, very popular heresy that gets the Spirit wrong called modalism. This can be confusing, by the way, because uh, the ancient, this is an ancient heresy, and it was actually in the early church known as Sabellianism. Today we call it modalism, and the reason that's confusing is because the Trinity was at one point in time in church history called modalism, <laughs> and those were called the modalists, so it can be confusing. But today, what we know as modalism is a heresy, and the early church, if someone was called a modalist, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But today, if someone's called a modalist, it's a bad thing. And why? Because... What the modalists say is they're not with the Jehovah's Witnesses. They agree that the Holy Spirit is, is, is a personal being. And He's even God, and we worship the Holy Spirit as God. But what they say is that God is not Trinitarian. He is Unitarian. Like you and me. You and me are Unitarian. You are one being and one person. And they say God is one being and one person, but that one person plays different roles. He has different modes of existing. So, for example... Elder Jesse is a husband, but he's also a teacher, but he's also a father. So sometimes Jesse acts as a father, but he doesn't treat his wife like he's her dad. So when he's with his children, he acts as father. When he's with his wife, he acts as husband. But when he's at school, he acts as teacher. And that's what modalists say about God. Sometimes God puts on his Holy Spirit costume, but then when that's not needed, he puts on the Jesus costume. When that's not needed, he puts on the Father costume. That too is heretical. 
And so this can all be confusing. Am I abusing the Spirit? Am I neglecting the Spirit? Am I a modalist? Am I a Unitarian? Am I a Jehovah's Witness? What am I? It would be good for us, I think, to set some just very basic understandings of the Spirit. We're not going to try to go super deep into church history and metaphysics. Just some very, very basic, important biblical teachings so that we can all get on the same page about the Holy Spirit. So what can we deduce from this verse, and then we will bring other passages of Scripture into it. What is it that we can learn about the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you up front, and then we'll go back and go through it. But this is what I want us to learn today. I want us to walk out of the room knowing this important thing. The Holy Spirit is a distinct, divine person. The Holy Spirit is a distinct, divine person. Let's just say it one more time. The Holy Spirit is a distinct, divine person person. So let's work through each of those things separately. The Holy Spirit is distinct, meaning there is some kind of distinction between the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. The modalists say there is no distinction. What we want to see is the Bible teaches there is a very real distinction between the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. Look again at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The first thing to notice here is that unlike the modalists, the person of the Holy Spirit here is said to be distinct from the Father. The Holy Spirit is a who by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. And that Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. It comes from God. He proceeds from the Father. God the Father sends a distinct Spirit who has a distinct role. We are told that He seals us This is the second time Paul has told us. We'll look at that in a minute. And only the Spirit is ever credited with sealing us in the Bible. Jesus is never said to be our seal. The Father is never said to be our seal. So here we have a distinct in the person. He is not God's Spirit, but the Spirit of God. And a distinction in role. He does something that God the Father is not doing. He is the sealer. Now you might say, oh, that's a little implicit because I could understand Spirit of God a lot of different ways. The Holy Spirit of God. I could understand that a lot of different ways. Well, then let's just remind each other of the larger context of the book of Ephesians. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. And I don't know if you recall, but our second sermon that we did on the book of Ephesians was just a look at all of verses 3 through 13, and we saw this incredible Trinitarian structure. And I wish we had time to go through the whole thing. But look with me just for a moment at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So verse 3 makes a clear distinction between Father and Son, does it not? Jesus has a Father. They're not just the same person wearing different hats. Jesus has a Father. Blessed be the Father of the Son. There's a distinction there. And then the distinction of the Spirit is made later on in verses 13 and 14. Look at those with me. Speaking of the Lord, the Son, Jesus, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So we are told very explicitly here that in the beginning we have a clear distinction between Father and Son, and then he adds on to that the distinction of the Spirit. When you believe in Jesus, 
then he will give you the Spirit. So Paul has already established a distinction within the Godhead. The Son has a Father, and the Father and the Son send a Spirit. We have three distinctions being made. And as we talked about in verse 30, 30, chapter 4, you can go back to chapter 4, verse 30 now, that the Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. So again, all throughout Scripture, and especially here, we're being taught that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person who has distinct roles in salvation. And this is all, like I said, I, I could honestly just give so many Bible passages to talk about this. But let's just give what has been one of the famous historic ones. I have it on the screen. If you'll go over, you'll need to go over two slides. Sorry, Drew, I should have told you. We're going to be jumping around a lot today. So read John 15, 26 with me. But when, this is Jesus speaking. This is the Son of God speaking. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Do you see the very clear and obvious distinction being made here? Right? Elder Jesse cannot send the teacher Jesse to the father Jesse to help the husband Jesse. That doesn't make any sense. But here we have a person saying a different person is going to send you a third person. There's a clear distinction. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and He bears witness in our souls about who Christ is. We have three people here. Three distinct people here. So if I've confused you up to this point, let me just simplify it. The first point is this. The Holy Spirit is not just another name for God the Father. The Holy Spirit is not just another title for God the Father. The Holy Spirit is a distinct person who proceeds from the Father and is sent to us by the Son to testify of the Son. There is a distinction between the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. But the next thing we need to see, so we've, we've already seen how in Ephesians 4.30 and justified elsewhere in Scripture, there is a distinction between the Spirit. But how far do we push that distinction? Is He God? Is He not God? Is He creature? How, how do we understand this distinct Holy Spirit? Well, that leads us to the next very important point. Not only is He distinct, but He is divine. He is a divine distinction. He is, in other words, God. That's, again, it's subtle, but it's in verse 30. Look at chapter 4, verse 30 with me. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit is subtly proved to be deity in this text because He is being credited with doing something that only God can do. The Spirit has a job, has an, a task. He accomplishes a task that only the power of God can accomplish. The role that Paul attributes to the Spirit is the role of sealing. The Holy Spirit seals you unto the day of redemption. Now, there are two primary things that a seal does. We technically have covered this before, because Paul mentions this in Ephesians 1, but I think it would be good to be reminded of it. The first thing a seal does is it marks something and sets it apart. A seal is a marking. If you were to go to school and get a bachelor's degree or a master's or a doctorate degree, on your diploma, the university is going to have a special stamp or a special seal on that. And what that seal does is it proves this diploma is authentic. 
It's genuine. It actually does belong to the university. It actually comes from the real university. It authenticates it, and it sets it apart from potential forgeries and fakes. So if someone with a really smart, high-tech computer system were to try to print out and match all of the colors perfectly on the diploma and make a fake diploma, you would know it's a forgery because it doesn't have the seal. And ideally, the seal is something only the university has. It's something that can't be faked. So when we receive the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, what's actually happening is that God is authenticating you as a genuine Christian. You're not a forgery. You're not a fake. You're not someone who just merely claims Christ, but it will be one of those on the day when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. People can claim Christ. People can forge Christianity. They can fake Christianity, but only those with the Holy Spirit are authentic. The Holy Spirit authenticates us as children of God. But by the way, not only does the Spirit authenticate us for other people, we see that, for example, throughout the book of Acts. Uh, I don't have it on the screen, but in Acts chapter 15, the Jewish leaders are, are upset that the apostles are like letting the Gentiles just come in to the people of God willy-nilly. And they think, no, the Gentiles can't be saved unless they become Jewish first. And one of the ways that Peter proves them wrong is Peter says, they, when they believed in Christ, immediately received the same spirit that we did. And they started performing the same works that we did. And they did all of this without being circumcised. They did all of this without becoming Jewish. So Peter proved, no, they don't need to become Jewish. They're genuinely saved by their faith. How do we know that? Because God set his seal on them. God said, this one belongs to me. So the seal certainly is for other people. But the seal is even for you. Sometimes we doubt our own salvation, do we not? Sometimes we have our own comfort question, do we not? And look at what Romans 8, 16 says about that. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. One of the jobs of the Spirit is to authenticate you to yourself. You're a child of God. Now, why does being a seal require divinity? Well, this requires the Spirit to be omnipresent. That's one of the attributes of God, omnipresent. That means everywhere present. There is nowhere you can go where God is not. He is everywhere present. We are temporal creatures. We are created creatures. We are local creatures, which is why you can only be in one place at one time. And your attention can only be on just a really a small amount of things at one time. God is not like that. God is everywhere present, and His attention is everywhere present. Now, let me ask you this sort of rhetorically. How could the Spirit, if He is a created being, if He is a local creature, and He has, he has a limited locality, how could He fill and be the seal of every Christian across the globe? How could He even be the seal of every Christian in this room? You see, the Spirit has to defy boundaries. He has to be outside of the space dimension. And He has to be outside of the time dimension. Because He not only has to seal believers everywhere in the world, He's got to seal believers who have come and gone, seal believers up in heaven. The Spirit is omnipresent. In order to be the seal for the entire Christian church in every age, He cannot be locally bound. He must have an attribute that we confess only God has. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan cannot be everywhere at one time. You cannot be everywhere at one time. Angels can't be everywhere at one time. Contrary to 1.5 billion people in the world, 
Jesus' mother Mary cannot be in multiple places at one time. God alone is the only person who can be everywhere present, and the Spirit is everywhere present. What does that make the Spirit? He's God. But there's more to that, because there's more that a seal does, at least according to Paul. The seal here not only marks us as the Spirit being everywhere present, marks us as Christians, which makes the Spirit everywhere present, which, by the way, uh, a cool verse, uh, if you'll turn over to Psalm 139, notice what the psalmist says, Where shall I go from your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? A rhetorical question there. There's nowhere you can go where the Holy Spirit is not. He is omnipresent. But a seal tells us more than just that the Spirit is omnipresent. It also tells us that He is omnipotent. That He is all-powerful. Read verse 30 with me again. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit marks you today... Yet that seal is to carry you and get you so that you will remain marked on Redemption Day. The Spirit is getting you to Redemption Day. In other words, He is the one who perseveres our faith to the Day of Judgment. And so this makes sense, by the way, because seals ideally are immovable, certain permanent marks. Right? What good would a seal be if you could just wipe it off? Right? It wouldn't be helpful. The, no, a seal is supposed to be an immovable, permanent, indestructible mark. You can't get rid of the seal. And so the Spirit, if He's going to be our seal unto the day of redemption, He's a permanent, indestructible, immovable mark. I think Jesus makes this clear in John 14. John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. He's never leaving. He's always with you. So the Spirit is a permanent, indestructible mark that perseveres us to the day of redemption. And again, I ask rhetorically, how could He do this if He were not God? It takes a divine power to preserve human faith. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that any human creature has the power to create their own faith and persevere it. It is always said that God must be the one who creates and initiates our faith. It's God the one who gives us the grace to persevere. And so if the Spirit is going to be, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, the guarantee of our inheritance, if He's going to seal us unto the day of redemption, He needs a supernatural power. Not just a supernatural presence, a supernatural power. He needs omnipotence to be all-powerful. And so in just Ephesians 4.30, we really have two attributes of God applied to the distinct Spirit. And by the way, we could make examples of the Spirit's divine attributes multiply as long as we were so inclined. We could speak, for example, about how all throughout Scripture the Spirit is credited with performing miracles. Two of the most famous ones, it is the Holy Spirit who fell upon Mary and made a virgin conceive. Angels can't do that. Humans can't do that. Science can't do that. God can do that. But even bigger, the Holy Spirit is credited with raising Jesus from the dead. Angels don't raise people from the dead permanently. Science doesn't raise people from the dead permanently. Only God and God alone has the power to raise the dead, and the Spirit did that. Genesis 1-2 tells us that the Spirit was active in the creation. You, it would be appropriate to refer to the Spirit as the creator of all things. No angel did that. No human does that. All throughout Scripture, the Spirit is given the divine attributes. You know what's one of my favorite examples of this? Scripture itself 
If you need proof from the scriptures that the Spirit is God, you just need to look at what the scriptures say about the scriptures. I've actually got uh, two examples for you on the screen. Notice how Peter describes the development, the writing of the Old Testament. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter here is telling us that the Bible is ultimately the Spirit's words. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, and that's why we confess in the Nicene Creed that it is He who spoke through the prophets. It is the Holy Spirit in history passed to us who is moving the prophets to speak God's word and to write God's word. And then, so, so we know that the scriptures were written by the Holy Spirit through men. Men wrote it. But the Holy Spirit through men carried them along to write the scriptures. And then what does Paul call the scriptures? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed. So Peter says the Holy Spirit wrote the scriptures and Paul says whoever wrote them is God. The words came from God and Peter says they came from the Spirit. What does that make the Spirit? He's God. When the Spirit speaks, God speaks. Because the Holy Spirit is God. He is a divine distinction. But that brings us to our last point. He's not just distinct. He's not just divine. This one is very, very important. He is a distinct divine person. He's not a force. He's not an abstract idea. He is a person. Look at verse 30 with me yet again. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And this tells us that He is personal. He's not a force like gravity or electricity. He's not just merely an attribute of God, like God's strength or God's power. Why? Because forces can't be grieved. You will never make gravity upset. You'll never make electricity depressed. You can't grieve forces. You can't grieve attributes. Only persons can be grieved. And when we sin, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Now, I do have to make a bit of a complex side note for a moment. Just to be faithful is my job as a minister of the Word. We do have to be careful with how we understand the concept of divine grief. All throughout Scripture, the biblical authors employ a writing technique that we refer to as anthropomorphism. And that's one of those words, like for our kids, it sounds really intimidating, but it's very simple. Anthropomorphism is when you take something that is not a human being, but apply human characteristics to it. So it's essentially when you humanize something that is not human. That's an anthropomorphism. So an example I like to give is oftentimes, basically every single night, I'm sitting out in the living room with Matthew, and I will smell my wife's cooking, and I will think, oh, whatever she's got going on in the kitchen is calling my name. Right? Now, we know that's not literally happening. Whatever she's cooking doesn't have vocal cords. It doesn't have expression. It's not, it's not actually speaking to me. But I've given it this human attribute because that's the, the clearest way I have to communicate something about myself to you. The Bible does this all the time. God is just so beyond us, so incomprehensible that you really can't comprehend God. And so the scriptures in mercy condescend to us and they, they give God human attributes that he does not literally have or at least not the way we have them so that we can as best as possible grasp this ungraspable God, right? So we see this especially when the Bible, for example, gives God body parts. 
The scriptures are very clear that God is not a human, that he is a spirit. That he doesn't have a body, but he is spirit. So we know God is spirit. Yet all throughout the Bible, it says things like, nothing is hidden from the eyes of the Lord. It says things like, may he turn and shine his face upon you. It says things like, now the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. It says things like, the world is the footstool underneath the feet of the Lord. He protects us in the shadow of his wings. Is God like a giant human bird-like creature? No, he doesn't have wings, he doesn't have eyes, he doesn't have a face, he doesn't have feet. But these are poetic ways to best communicate something about God. And the same thing when the Bible talks about God's body parts is happening when it talks about his human emotions. He doesn't have human body parts. He also does not have human emotions. We are told all throughout the scriptures that when the Bible speaks of God as, in terms of anger or love, or hear grief, or sometimes even regret, sometimes even repentance. The Bible, like in 2 Samuel, will go out of its way to say this isn't literal. God is not a man like us that he should regret or repent. So why does the Bible, right before that, teach us of the God whose regrets and then repents? It is attributing human characteristics to the non-human God so that we can, as best as we can, understand. So all of this is to say is the Holy Spirit does not experience grief the way you and I do. So we want to be careful there. Because what are the ramifications of this, by the way? If the Holy Spirit can experience human grief, then what's to say that God cannot have other human emotions like fear, depression, anxiety, surprise? Can God be surprised? Can the all-knowing God be surprised? Can the all-powerful God be afraid? No. This is why the church has always historically affirmed two really important attributes of God. That God is impassable and immutable. If you were able to go to the Wednesday night class, I hope these are ringing a bell because we spend a lot of time on these. The impassable God means that he does not have human emotions. Impassable is without emotion. And the immutable God means he cannot be moved. In other words, he cannot be changed. God cannot stop being God tomorrow. God cannot become unfaithful tomorrow. He cannot become evil tomorrow. He can't be changed. He can't be moved. He can't move from one state to a new state. And this is good news. That might sound, oh, that's weird philosophy. That's bizarre. That's confusing. To some degree it is, but it's good news. Would you rather believe in a God who Satan could make him petrify, you know, just petrified and afraid? Do you want a God who's scared of Satan? Do you want a God that's fearful of the future? Do you want a God that has anxiety over our circumstances? Do you want a God that you can surprise? Do you, do, you, do you want to believe in a God that could ever look at you and say, Oh, wow, I did not see this coming. This is, this is good news. <laughs> I know it makes some of these passages harder to understand, but this is good news. God is not a man like you and me. He's not a man. But the Bible will attribute man-like qualities such as grief to him to some degree express as best as we can comprehend that when you sin, the Holy Spirit is against that. The Holy Spirit is not okay with you when you sin. The Holy Spirit's disposition is opposite of your sin. And the easiest way to describe that is to say you grieve him. You upset him. But what's all this leading us to, though? No matter how metaphysical and church, no matter what you want to get into it, here's one thing you cannot escape. 
The Holy Spirit interacts with the world like a person, not like gravity, not like electricity, not like an abstract idea. The Bible is above all trying to tell us here that the Holy Spirit is personal. He's in you, and when you sin, you grieve Him. Whatever metaphysical distinctions we want to make, the simple point is this. The Spirit is a person inside of you who can be grieved and who can be satisfied. And as we've seen with all of our other attributes, this is again something all throughout the Bible. We could prove the personality of the Holy Spirit all throughout the Bible. I won't give as many references as I possibly can, but let me just give a couple really, really important ones. Uh, Jesus, our Lord, refers to the Spirit as a personal uh, being as a person. We see this in John 16. This is Jesus speaking. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Notice how Jesus is clearly operating under the assumption that the Spirit is a person. He refers to him as a he all throughout the passage. He, he, he. Ephesians 4.30 calls him a what? A whom. A whom, whom, whom. He's not an it. He's a whom. He's not an it. He's a he. And not only is he he, look at all of the personal things he's doing. He guides. He teaches. He listens. He hears. These are personal actions of a personal he. He's not a force. He's a person. And, and if for some reason you are inclined to not believe Jesus, and if that is you, we need to have a talk. But if for some reason you're inclined not to believe Jesus, listen to the Spirit's own testimony of himself in Acts 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit speaks. Gravity doesn't speak. The Holy Spirit calls people to missions and purposes. Electricity doesn't do that. And the Holy Spirit refers to himself as an I. He's an acting person. Now, I know you get the point, but it would be just so inappropriate to move on from the personality of the Spirit without reading from 1 Corinthians 12. Let's read this together, and then I won't belabor the point much longer. Notice this, what Paul has to say about the role of the Spirit in spiritual gifts. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Here's the key. All these things are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Those last three words are incredibly powerful. The Spirit has a will. He makes choices. He looks at our church and determines, I know what they need. And He looks at other churches and says, they need something different. He's a person. He is a distinct, divine person. He does personal things all throughout Scripture. The Spirit creates. The Spirit testifies. The Spirit intercedes. The Spirit prays. The Spirit teaches. The Spirit can be blasphemed. All of these things teach us that the Spirit is a personal agent and not a force. And by the way, one final proof of this, our baptism formula. 
We had a baptism last week. And, and how was Braylon baptized? How have everyone in this church been baptized? In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's how we baptize because Jesus told us in the book of Matthew to baptize like that. Now, I'm sorry, Drew, I don't have that on the screen. Uh, it just came to me. I apologize. In, in baptism, right? So notice, notice how insane this would be if we assume for the moment that the Holy Spirit is not a distinct divine person. We baptize in the name of the Father, who everyone agrees, even the heretics, is a distinct divine person. And then we baptize in the name of the Son, who the heretics say is maybe not fully divine, but he is a distinct person. So we've got the Father, distinct person. We've got the Son, distinct person, and the Holy Spirit, the force of God. How bizarre. And doesn't that break the cadence? Doesn't that break the rhythm? Why are we being baptized into two people and then into a force? That's like saying, uh, I, I, I'm baptizing in the name of Colin, Layla, and Humor. This doesn't make sense. No, our baptism formula is very clear that we are baptized into the one singular name. Jesus doesn't say baptized into the names. There is one name, and that one name is a three-named one name. I wonder why that is. One name, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All three divine. All three distinct. All three persons. The Spirit, again, is a distinct divine person. Now, oftentimes it's been brought up that our evidence to prove the Spirit is deity seems to be so different than what we have to prove the deity of the Son. This is why even at the Council of Nicaea, is Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Son of God, fully God? Yes, everyone agreed. This is simple. But then it came to the Spirit, it was like, oh, we need to talk about this a little bit. Why is that? Why is our evidence so different? And even to some degree, compared to the evidence we have of Jesus' deity, and that would take months. <laughs> Why is it so sparing? And I think this actually makes sense because of some of the stuff we've read through the book of John. One of the Spirit's jobs, as we've seen, is to glorify the Son. It's to testify to the Son. It's to lift up the Son. So it would make sense that the, script the Scriptures, which were written by the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to turn our attention to Christ, are primarily concerned about Christ. Right? Because that's His job. So it is true that there is clearer and more evidence of Jesus' deity than the spirits in the Bible. That's true. But we have good reason to believe that's why that's the case. And also, even in light of that, we still have ample evidence all throughout the Bible that, again, the Holy Spirit is a distinct divine person. Let's conclude with Acts chapter 5, and then we'll sing. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Acts 5, 1 through 6. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought it only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. 
and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. According to Peter, who did Ananias lie to? To the Holy Spirit or to God? Both. Yes. Yes, both. To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God because he is God. To the lie to the Holy Spirit, if God was going to be, if God wanted to, to lie to the Holy Spirit would get you killed every single time. Because he's more than just a man. He's more than just an angel. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is an unforgivable sin. Why? Because he's God. He's a distinct, divine person. And that is why we confess that he is God. He is the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. 